Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Saving Faith and Family in America. Please welcome our host, Katie Gorka, Director of Civil Society and American Dialogue at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. So the past year and a half has been exceptionally difficult for Americans. I sat at home with my son, whose college shut down for about 10 months. Thankfully, my husband was home, but he was still able to go into his workplace. But throughout this past year and a half, I've often thought of the people who had to go through this alone. So for example, I thought about the young professionals who were probably so excited before COVID that they had finally managed to get their own apartment, only to find that their living space was now their workspace, and they were spending 24 hours a day in isolation. I also thought about friends of mine who were single parents, who now with COVID suddenly went to not only being the sole breadwinner and the sole parent, but also to being the sole educator and the sole babysitter for their kids who couldn't go to school. And I know many of us thought throughout the, this year and a half about those people who were stuck at home in bad relationships or abusive relationships. We were concerned about families that weren't working well, abusive parents. I think for everybody, it was a very difficult year and a half. And I would say that if ever there was a set of circumstances that could uniquely and powerfully underscore the value of family and of healthy family, it's been the COVID crisis. I'm pleased to welcome J.P. DeGantz to the Heritage Foundation. He's the co-author, along with Dr. John Van Epp of Endgame, the Church's Strategic Move to Save Faith and Family in America. JP is also the founder and president of Communio, which directly engages in the work of helping to restore marriage in America. Now, the work that JP has been doing has been going on for a number of years. Dr. Van Epp, it's been going on for decades. But I think that there is really a unique moment now because of the COVID crisis to focus on the family. I think people keenly feel the problems, the decline of the family. So I, I felt that your book was so timely. I was so excited to find out about it and to find that you were coming out now with this summary of the work you've been doing and a plan for going forward. So I'm gonna ask JP to come up to the mic. He's gonna speak for about seven to 10 minutes and then he'll join in a conversation with two men who are also deeply engaged in the work of healing families. So let me just introduce them briefly. No, come on up, go ahead. And I'll just introduce briefly now um, our other two panelists. So Dr. Jay Richards is the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in Heritage's DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. His work here focuses on protecting life, marriage, religious liberty, and renewing civil society. The Reverend Dean Nelson is Chairman of the Board of the Douglas Leadership Institute and Vice President of the Human Coalition. Welcome, gentlemen. JP, the floor is yours. Great, thank you. Thanks so much, Katie. Really great to be here with, with you, and thanks to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this. You know, uh, 
right now, I think our country is in the midst of an ongoing political and economic crisis, and we could make a variety of arguments as to what's driving it. And I'm going to argue that much of this, all of this predates really COVID, that the crisis in our country is fundamentally the has its origins in the collapse of faith and the collapse of family. Um, now, let's take one, those one at a time and, and, and look at them. Look at marriage, okay? Uh, uh, marriage has declined 31% since the year 2000, meaning there's 31% fewer people getting married each year than in the year 2000, not ancient history, right? And uh, it, is, it has declined 61% since the year 1970. Now, it's, it's sometimes said that uh, marriage civilizes men, and I know Mrs. DeGantz would agree, my wife would certainly agree, and uh, if that's true, then it also means that we live at a, a time in our history where there's never been more uncivilized men walking in our communities, right? And um, uh, we certainly, I could argue, see much of this unfolding in our news. Now, children are very much the victims of this flight from marriage. 54% right? of children will reach their 17th birthday without a continuously married mom and a dad. Okay, And we know that a child who lives with a man who's not his father is the most vulnerable to abuse. Okay, adverse childhood experiences. Okay, the, the number of those soar out for children who are raised in homes without continuously married parents. Now, also faith has collapsed, right? In so many ways, you could look at different data points. Gallup came out with numbers in spring that showed for the first time in Gallup's history, we're seeing a majority of Americans say that they don't belong to any house of worship. Now, there's definitely some bilateral causality, you know, back and forth between these two things. Mary Eberstadt, who uh, I think so highly of in her work, talks about a double helix uh, of these two institutions uh, strengthening each other. It's the core argument of Endgame that over the last 60 years, this causality has moved from one side to the other, meaning it's the collapse of family that has driven the collapse of faith. And uh, ultimately, uh, one of the things that we note is that the church has not yet fully grasped this, okay? Uh, we look at just seven of the best known evangelical and Catholic youth evangelization and youth discipleship ministries. Just those seven great venerable organizations like Awana, Young Life, uh, Crew, or uh, Fo Focus, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, amazing organizations. Those seven organizations report spending $1.1 billion annually on youth in, on youth evangelization and youth discipleship. Then we looked at what churches are spending their dollars on themselves. We did a survey with the Barna Group to understand how they're allocating resources. And we just extrapolated in a very conservative way and found just about another $900 million being spent by the largest churches in America on youth evangelization and youth discipleship. This is nearly $2 billion annually. That number is very likely $4 to $6 billion annually. And I would say as Christians, as, as stewards of the good king's resources, what is our return on that right now? Right now, we're continuing to see increasing apostasy within our youth. Uh, CARA, uh, uh, a, a Catholic think tank in Georgetown, noted that, that the median age of a Catholic leaving their faith is the age of 13, okay? Uh, and 74% leave their faith between the age of 10 and 20. So while we're spending the most, on, more than ever, 
on youth on youth discipleship, those numbers are not going in the right direction. In fact, the religious non-affiliated keeps getting younger and younger as an age group. So what's driving it then? I've, it's my case that it's the family and the collapse of marriage that has driven the whole bus over the last 60 years. Okay, I'll give you a, a, a one key data point from the book. Okay, we partnered with uh, uh, Dr. Mark Regnerus on his survey uh, a couple times, and we looked at uh, uh, reli religious practice based on family of origin. And what we found was millennials and baby boomers, believe it or not, go to church every single week at nearly the exact same rate, if I know one thing about both people. If they both grew up in a continuously married home, there's almost no difference in how frequently a millennial goes to church when compared to a baby boomer, okay? What's different is that the family structure of millennials has completely shifted, okay? And what it, what it fundamentally means is that our churches would largely be full today if, if millennials, Gen Xers, and Gen Zers were to have enjoyed the same family structure as baby boomers. So then what is the church doing about this? Right now, not much, okay? We've, uh, in, our, in our data, uh, with Barna, we found that 85% of churches reported spending 0% of their dollars each and every year on marriage and relationship ministry. So this is, I say this as an optimist, this is a great news. It means the family and marriage is in free fall and the church is largely sitting on the sidelines. We've not yet answered the bell. We can answer the bell. The church has historically been the greatest firefighter, the, the greatest disaster response organization in global history. Okay, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a like a something like a plague, okay, or a pandemic of some sort. Like, it was the church in ancient Rome that ran into Rome to save, to save souls, save uh, the sick. Uh, it, you, it was the hospital was an invention of the church, and you see this. Uh, uh, the church uh, combated a variety of pathologies in our own country, much closer to our own day. Uh, and the, the, there was a historian said in the early 1800s that Americans drank from the crack of dawn until the crack of dawn. And, um, and it was uh, churches who organized effectively the temperance movement that reduced alcoholic consumption by 70% by the 1870s, long before prohibition. The church can do amazing things animated by the gospel to transform culture. And it's time that the church does it. That's the message of the book. And we go into real how-tos of how it's been done. In my work, we've, we've uh, ran a, a strategic uh, initiative in Jacksonville, Florida, where we worked with more than 50 churches. Through those churches, moved 58,912 through couples relationship education. In three years, the divorce rate dropped 24% uh, across Duval County. And we saturated that market with digital outreach so that the church became a, a light, uh, 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 light to the community, drawing folks in to invest in their relationships. So change can happen. We have agency. The church needs to focus here in order to save the family and ultimately save faith in America. Gentlemen, I will let you no. start if you have questions you'd like to ask or if you want to challenge. Actually, let me start because I want to underscore, since JP didn't speak, uh, very, for very long, and the book really is sort of revolutionary if you're not used to thinking about these things. And so I want you to spend a few minutes. You said, you conceded, of course, that there's this um, a double helix or kind of multiple causation. And so the, the way most people think of this is in terms of sort of secularization. So you get, I don't know, um, we think that ideas affect 
institution. So we imagine something happened in the 19th century, uh, loss of belief in God, secularization, that worked its way through our institutions, including the family, and then started to break down the family. And you're not denying that there's some connection there, but right. the, the burden of your book is the causation in the other way, in which the breakdown of the family uh, is largely responsible uh, for the loss of faith. So in this case, um, it would be the, the health of institutions actually shaping the beliefs that people have. And so that's somewhat counterintuitive. So spend a little more time like justifying that. Like why should we think that there's that, that causal yeah. direction? It's like Nietzsche, okay, um, uh, the, the greatest, best known uh, atheist of the last several hundred years. This is a, a commonly occurring incident. And so what we also know from the social science is that fathers, um, while we all may know individual great dads who are not married, okay, I'm not talking about any individual vivid example. Generally speaking, the statistics show that an unmarried father is generally uninvolved, okay? And so that means as, you, as marriage collapses, fatherhood collapses, and you can't, there's a lot of efforts trying to restore fatherhood in sort of a secular construct as if fatherhood can be repaired outside of marriage. Well, there are individual examples where that happens. If you're trying to get it at scale, you can't do it without restoring marriage. And so, uh, so, so, it, so the social science supports it, and then the psychology starts to help us understand that uh, uh, the collapse of the institution of marriage and the collapse of particularly fatherhood as a result of the collapse of marriage, you start to see the psychological under lying reason for why faith itself is, is in such in such flight and and say uh, you know you have um, uh, the reality is this shouldn't surprise any Christian right uh, God has revealed himself as father and yeah and uh, uh, Christ in so many ways and and both in the New Testament and and in the Old Testament you see that salvation is written really as a love story, as a spousal love story. Okay, whether that's uh, whether we see that in Hosea, in the uh, whether we see it uh, in the Psalms, whether we see it in the Songs of Solomon, whether we see it uh, in Isaiah, we, in the New Testament with Ephesians and Corinthians, uh, that that the marital embrace is an icon intended to be an icon of the love story between. God and his people. And so as that breaks down, as that breaks apart, that institution breaks apart, we don't, we, we don't get the threat of the story. Salvation makes less sense in a Christological sense, right? And so then you start to see uh, uh, why the, both theologically, biblically, psychologically, and sociologically, why the collapse of, of the family is driving the whole bus. Yeah, um, lots of thoughts. First of all, I want to say, JB, this is fantastic work. Uh, I'm grateful that uh, that you've done it. We need more of these, like you know, every generation, every year, to reevaluate. And um, I'd like to take a step back. Talk to me a little bit, the audience, a little bit about um, your approach, uh, particularly engaging and writing this from um, um, a perspective of Catholic and Protestant. Uh, why that's important. Um, and why you've, why you've taken that, that approach. And then secondly, um, sometimes we have this divide between those in the academy and the practitioner. 
Um, who is this work for and how does it kind of bridge that, that gap as well? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the, the book ultimately is targeting church leaders. Uh, the, what I would describe as the, and my co-author and I describe as the Christian grass tops. Okay, <laughs> pastors, uh, engaged members of a, volunteers at a church, uh, those ultimately uh, actively participating in the advance of the faith, anybody uh, and under that umbrella would find the book practical and, and of great value. Uh, now, why we went with the approach, uh, you know, my, my name, JP, you could probably guess, you know, uh, <laughs> John Paul, and I am deeply influenced by John Paul's ecumenical approach. Uh, I think we, uh, as Catholics, just celebrated uh, his feast day and I, uh, on the 22nd, and uh, he had such a great uh, and he, not a lot of people remember, had been invited by John Paul, then Cardinal Watoya, to come and preach in his cathedral. Um, and it, uh, that occurred during the conclave. So he was there while uh, 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 Cardinal Watoya wasn't there. And, um, and then later they, they had a, a great friendship. Uh, and uh, John Paul famously said, Graham, we're brothers. And... Fundamentally, I think there's so much. Uh, I've been, I've had such relationships from my evangelical friends who've, who have strengthened my faith and their witness, and uh, I think that's such a, uh, such a gift uh, uh, that. Um, and and this problem that we're faced with is not a problem unique to um, Catholics or evangelicals or Protestants, right? This that we are, we are uh, in the same waters, and marriage has been pummeled on, on, on all fronts. And, uh, and, and so we, uh, the full body of Christ, uh, the, all those uh, united through our common baptism and faith in Christ, need to be uh, collaborating in, in this fight. Uh, and, uh, and as a consequence, our work as an organization, our um, community is, Board of Directors is ecumenical. We've got some great evangelical Christians, great uh, Catholics. Uh, we uh, and our staff is is also uh, uh, mixed. We employ folks who are uh, evangelical pastors in parish life uh, for years, so that we can you know, work with uh, with with churches uh, across the board to to strengthen uh, really strengthen that the at significant scale, right? There's, there's 25,000 churches of 500 or more people that are evangelical, Protestant, and Catholic, and uh, that's a great place to start. If 85% of them aren't doing anything on marriage and relationship, you can produce a major sea change if we move that move that lever. Yeah, can I have a question if I could? So I feel like I'm, I'm the perfect. Do we really feel, do you feel that priests and pastors are sufficiently equipped in the work of healing and No, no, they're not right now. And, and um, uh, so uh, a lot of the work of churches right now in marriage is on two areas. It's, if it exists, 
There's marital formation, right? Some sort of premarital activity is, is certainly ubiquitous on the Catholic side. It is fairly common today amongst evangelical churches. Um, uh, and then, uh, see, 93% of Protestant pastors and 87% of Catholic pastors reported meeting with couples in crisis. But overwhelmingly, they admitted that they felt um, uh, uh, only somewhat qualified in doing that. Okay, so very frequently the, the pastor is the frequently uh, well well situated. We the the analogy we try to use is that every pastor shouldn't be become you know a Jedi Knight in marriage counseling. That's not necessary. They should see themselves as an EMT, right? If there's a somebody's a patient's having a heart attack, the EMT doesn't show up and say we need to do a, a triple bypass and cut a patient open right there. No, the, the key, key there is for the EMT to stabilize the patient and know how to get the patient help. And that's a, a huge uh, uh, way that pastors can be helpful, okay? And the other huge barrier is that there's this myth and perception that relationship ministry, marriage ministry, is really only for people who are having problems, okay? You only, you know, you go to a marriage because you're struggling, and so if I show up, I'm signaling to other people that we're struggling. And this is a huge uh, strategic uh, objective that we work with churches on, okay? We talk about a church should have sound vision, skills, and community to have a good relationship ministry. And the vision is is not just the idea of of uh, the upholding of biblical marriage in the church, okay, although that's certainly part of it. It's also the idea that in this church, everybody invests in their relationships. If you have a great car, you don't wait for smoke to start fuming out of the, of the hood. You bring it in regularly to get serviced, right? We all know that if we want to live a long and healthy life, we proper diet and exercise, right? Same thing with our relationships. Relationships aren't less important than our car, and that should be the, the, the kind of common sense messaging from the pulpit and from the church should be the idea that everyone does this. And so then we change the norm that ev the norms in the church. And then marriage ministry actually needs to start many years before the wedding day. That the, the collapse of marriage uh, uh, is, is the biggest threat to the church and the world. Um, uh, the, how do we come alongside single young adults and support them for and building the skills for uh, the right cadence of forming the right relationships. In the book, we talk about the modal time where an individual reports having sex for the first time with someone is before a relationship begins. Okay, we are, uh, uh, there, there is such a, a, um, a, a lack of knowledge in how to form lasting relationships, that this is an area where the church can add a lot of value. And one of the reasons I was so excited to partner with John Van App was John, more so than anybody I know, has worked in developing resources for singles within a continuum of relationships. So that, uh, that, that a 20-year-old, uh, you know, a 25-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 30-year-old is able to understand uh, the right way to attach to someone, the right healthy way to attach to someone, and, uh, and, and, uh, and to discern whether or not someone is worthwhile in continuing to pursue. So 
all of that is, is you know, these are all huge needs on part of the church. If their parents were continuously married when they're being raised, have almost exactly the same percentage that are still faithful, still, still going to church, which is staggering because that really, I mean, almost more than any single statistic suggests the role of the collapse of the family uh, in, in the collapse of faith. But then what's missing is, of course, that's the collapse of the, the previous sort of claim, the secularization theory that this came from ideas. We got the collapse of marriage. Now we have the question, okay, so what actually caused the collapse of marriage then? Uh, you talk about this decoupling, but, and you know, I, I remember you compared the 20s and the 40s and the 60s. So what was the set of things that led to this massive decoupling? One, like in general, and then in two, since we're at the Heritage Foundation, I have to ask, are there some policies that maybe unwittingly also contributed to this? And we talk about uh, supply and demand side sometimes when I talk to my uh, free market friends on this stuff, that, that sometimes policy creates uh, the supply uh, that in incentivizes bad, you know, uh, less than optimal behavior. And then um, and there's also cultural demand outside of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no doubt that the great society programs and their existence of, of, of providing aid and support in a way that disincentivized marriage and, and uh, particularly in poor communities was a huge, is, a, is part of that story. But I often uh, pump the brakes with some of my libertarian friends who sometimes make the case that it's just an economic formula. If we didn't just create, re, reconstitute this, the right algorithm, we'll, we'll, everything will whip back into, into place. So as I then ask, you know, is that the reason why, say, you're you know, a 29-year-old grandchild who is upper middle class or, or better is choosing not to get married or cohabiting, right? It, it, it's not right. the Great Society program that, that's causing that. <laughs> and um, okay, so so then the other elephant in the room is the sexual revolution, and then so you'd have to say what is what what drove the sexual revolution, right? Um, ultimately, the ability to uncouple the consequences of sex, mm -hmm. okay, was a huge factor, right? So that. Once, you, once sex was able to be recreational, right, because that's fundamentally, nobody set out and said, we're going to do this so that it can be recreational. That's what happened once, once you could um, um, artificially create a barrier for conceiving a child. Uh, and, uh, and the proliferation of it and the, the widespread acceptance of it in the culture was a, it was a, was a key turning point, right, um, uh, which fueled fueled much of the sexual revolution. Okay, so then how does that, how do you, ultimately as a, as a, as a culture, how do we um, uh, reconstitute the right cadence of marriage uh, uh, given the fact that that genie's out of the bottle, right? Like how do you, how do, you uh, do that? One of the big, uh, big things I, I, uh, we use in the book is uh, John's, my co-authors, uh, attachment model, which is sort of five dimensions, you know, no, uh, going, going across from no uh, trust, commit, I'm sorry, no trust, rely, commit, touch, okay? And no one variable to the right over here should be higher than a variable to the left, right? You don't, you don't trust someone more than you know them. Mm -hmm. You don't 
you don't rely on them more than you trust them, and you don't commit to them than you rely on them, and you shouldn't be in a state of sexual touch more than any of those, right? Uh, and what we know now is, is from the secular sciences, a huge driver of, of the loneliness epidemic, of suicidal ideation, uh, is, is highly connected to, uh, for instance, um, the number of, of prior sexual partners, right? We're told by the culture that, that you, can, you can and should uh, behave as you like, uh, as, as your instincts would have you sexually without, as, and there shouldn't be any consequences. You'll be happy, it'll be great, and uh, the reality is the social sciences, the psychological sciences are showing overwhelmingly that that's not the case, right? Um, so, uh, I, and, and before, obviously, 1960, we talk about it in the book of what was going on in the 20s, and 40s, you had a, the beginnings of a sexual revolution in the 1920s. Uh, contraception's been around for a very long time, okay? Uh, long before artificial contraception, uh, a lot, there was, a, there was contraception in ancient Rome that was way more effective than, it, than, than most scholars uh, have previously thought. Uh, so this isn't a, that's not new. Uh, uh, but the widespread sea change that, 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 uh, a, that we're culturally, the, we, we stopped, expecting sex to be within marriage fueled, uh, fueled much of, that, uh, of, of the marital and family decline. So this is great. Um, a lot of what you've discussed, um, your friend, my friend, colleague, Brad Wilcox, um, has addressed in the past. So let's go, let's talk a little bit more deeply about uh, a segment of our population, African Americans, who read the Bible more, go to church more than any other segment, but yet have horrible um, rates when it comes to all of these challenges. Um, Jonah Goldberg wrote several years ago, and um, I think it was uh, uh, fascist, liberal fascism, um, that you know during a period of time, during the 60s, Johnson administration, that there were these policies that particularly hurt vulnerable populations, but policies that advocated, you know, 100,000 workers going into communities that were convincing people to get onto uh, welfare. Uh, my grandfather was one of those that they referred to as the two prouds. These were, you know, black men that didn't want to take public assistance because of the idea that black men were shipless, lazy. So he, had to, he wanted to demonstrate something different. So we've seen, you know, these problems, even when I first came to DC, there was an article in the Washington Post, marriages for white people. What can we do to reaffirm some of the traditions of the past? We put out a policy report recently, the enduring strength of the black family, because at one point we saw in the African-American family stronger marriage rates than in other families. And so what can we do? What have you guys, you know, found that we can do to, we can't put the genie back in the bottle, but what can we do from a restorative standpoint uh, in communities that have been ravaged by uh, sexual revolution and bad public policy? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, uh, can, be, there's a, uh, can be made around social justice. Okay, there's very, um, if you're, you have great concerns about poverty, great concerns about upward mobility, we have great concerns about education. 
there's almost no uh, social ill related to social to to what we commonly are concerned about with social justice, and we need to as uh, help our our church understand th uh, that more effective single institution at combating social injustice than a healthy okay and uh that um i think um uh, uh frequently we separate a conversation there's areas where we can actually talk about economic mm -hmm. you know in, in advance of of good cultural ideas and it's just it, it, we can't um uh isolate those conversations uh and and so uh the data over is in, in our favor, and so helping, uh, uh, and this is across the socioeconomic and, r and racial divides, case everywhere, uh, and certainly it's the case in the black community. And so uh, helping uh, 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 pastors understand it, know it, and then act on how do you, how do you create a ministry that, that, um, that uh, incentivizes and, and reinforces mm -hmm. sound marriages. We're uh, working on a partnership to do just that with a, uh, with a historically black uh, university right. to uh, uh, apply a lot of our methodologies in, a, in ways within black churches and um, uh, know that there's a lot of cultural translation to happen to be able to do that effectively. Um, uh, and one of the big things in all churches one of the biggest, you know, I, I jokingly tell pastors that any church is basically an inverted nightclub, okay, <laughs> meaning like, you know, in nightclubs, you know, there's a lot of guys and not enough women, and so, it, you know, ladies drink free, and how the, the club figures out ways to, to get, um, uh, to increase the gender ratio. Well, in, we've surveyed now, we've completed over 30,000 uh, surveys of people in church and we know that the numbers stand at least 70 30 mm. okay women to men okay we're not we're not doing enough to attract men to church okay and so outreach and ministry actually needs to uh, i'm not saying that we need to get velvet ropes and you know in front of the church or anything like that but <laughs> but we need to think about how to how to get how to get men in okay and we've um uh when we work with churches you know, um, uh, there's a, I talk about this in, in the book, there's a great ministry that we followed in Kansas City called City on a Hill that targets single young adults mm. and they build their outreach around uh, young adult sports and they build sports leagues, which overwhelmingly become heavily men uh, because that's what they want to do. And, and then they have a discipler on teams and they form small groups out of their out of their teams, and they move people into affiliation with church. Right? What are the ways as churches are, are we identifying and, and uh, recruiting men? We worked with a, a a very poor church in a migrant farm area with Mexican and Haitian farm workers. Okay, the outreach there was different than what we we uh, ended up doing a a, a barbecue cook-off as a as a way to uh, at a competition amongst men. Okay, so the point is, we have to be creative about what the problem is. One of the problems is the sex ratio imbalance is, is so lopsided in the church, in all churches and in the black church, mm -hmm. that we can't 
pretend that it's not a problem. We have to actually lean into it yeah. and try to try uh, to strategically act to solve those problems. JP, I want to make sure we give our audience a chance to ask questions if there are any questions out there. Is there anybody? Yes. Uh, who's got the microphone? Oh, thank you. Just hold one second. Yes, um, you mentioned um, how like the sexual revolution was kind of a pushing this problem. I was kind of wondering if you looked into any other like underlying ideologies that kind of supported sort of like the tearing down of the family. I kind of think of the example of like in communism that it explicitly calls for the withering away of the family and replacing it with sexual liberation or how it seems to be now with feminism is kind of poisoned against motherhood. Is this something you looked at, or? Yeah, uh, I don't write about a lot about it in the book, but uh, I've, when I've given talks, you know, quoted uh, uh, Marx and Engels in his writing, their writings on on the the nuclear family, the intact family, really uh, being a, a direct impediment to um, to their revolution. Right, there needed to be a cultural revolution in order to do that. Right. Um, that that was certainly seen uh, in different ways. Uh, um, uh, BLM had it on their website. Okay. Um, uh, certainly, they weren't hiding from that. That wasn't an accident. That's uh, the, the founder of it identified as a as a Marxist, right? Uh, cultural Marxist. Okay. Um, there are certainly uh, intentional efforts to. Uh, bring about the new man, right? And that that um, there's a sort of infinite optimism on the pliability of man who can be re to our own whims, right? And that is the I've I've heard said. Well, the family's going to pass away, and whatever's next is going to be amazing. Like even if we, you know, even if we pretend that was true, okay? Bet between here and there is the loss of so many souls, lives, the carnage that will play out and that is playing out is so massive that it would make such an, an experiment uh, uh, so cruel, so uh, abusive to children and really abusive to women. Uh, the, the, uh, in so many ways, the sexual revolution was, has been identified as a way to uh, liberate women, but in reality, uh, you would argue that guys seem to be if, on most base instincts for men, right? Guys can have sex when they want with little consequences and they can exit whenever they want without any social constraint, right? Like who's the one benefiting, right? So uh, this is a, um, all those things are, uh, 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 there's certainly a deeply ideological uh, driver to much of this, but so many of our, uh, the message to our, our pastors and to folks is the science is now so overwhelming that it's embarrassing right. that people don't grasp or talk about. If you're talking about poverty and you're not talking about marriage and the family, then you're not really serious about combating poverty, right? If if you're concerned about education, okay, and you're not serious about talking about the number of families in your school, then you're not really serious about improving education. There's only so much these other, so much of philanthropy and so much of the work of the church actually appears to presuppose that you can't fix marriage and the family, so let's do a bunch of other stuff that's really expensive.
to try to mitigate the collapse of the family. And it's the argument of the book, and it's my argument, that that's absolutely the wrong way to approach it. That, that, that we can, marriage is deeply human heart. It exists across cultures, across religions. Certainly, as Christians, we believe Christ elevated Christian marriage, but still it is a, uh, it, it's a universal gift to humanity. And, uh, and so there's a lot there that we have to work with if we lean, lean into it and, and help folks. Uh, uh, certainly, for instance, on cohabitation, which has become, we talk about this in the book, has become ubiquitous within the church, okay, um, let alone the culture. How often have you heard a pastor talk about um, that, talk about the fact that a married woman is the most safe from any form of violence? How often do we talk about that a woman who lives with her boyfriend is the most prone to domestic violence? That's right. How often do we talk about the fact that a child conceived in a home without her, without a husband in the home, 40% of them are without a dad by the age of three. 70% are without a dad by the age of 12. How often do we do folks talk about that if, if you cohabitate for a long period of time and then that cohabitation is broken off and then you later get married, the stability of that first marriage is it's as vulnerable as a remarriage, right? So a second marriage is more likely to divorce than someone who's first time married, okay? There's a lot of data around cohabitation that pastors need to have at their fingertips when talking about this because the why is really important, okay? It's, 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 uh, it certainly should be avoided because it, it is in contradiction to the gospel. There's all sorts of moral reasons why it should be avoided, but we need to uh, help our, our young people understand that it's dangerous to them. It also inhibits their freedom, okay? Once a couple lives together, you lose the ability to easily discern whether or not this person is someone you should marry. Because now I've got common bills with this person. And once I've discerned that they're not a fit, when do we renew our lease? Okay, when, or maybe we have a common mortgage. Okay, that's not as easily extricated. And so it actually really inhibits the freedom of a young man and a young woman. And so there's all sorts of good reasons, okay, for why, why it should be avoided. And, um, uh, and, and we as a, uh, as a church need to be able to speak, speak into that prophetically and win, with win, as, uh, in a winsome way, okay? But help our folks, help our young people know the risks. You know, I'm sorry, you know, we're out of time. I'm so sorry. This is a great note to end on. Um, so, you know, people who come to our programs are always asking, so what? What can I do? And I love this book because I think it's a great opportunity for everybody to take the book and take it to your pastor, take it to your priest. I know that's what I'm going to do and say, here's an opportunity. We think this is important. So for those of us who have children who have a heart for the struggles that our children are going through in the world, the way the world is viewing relationships these days, I think there's really a lot of hope and promise in what you've presented. So. Thank you very much. I encourage everybody to read the book. I loved it. I learned a lot. Thank you for being here.
Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to a conversation with Latvian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Edgar Zrinkovich, strengthening economic dynamism, societal resilience, and transatlantic ties through the Three Cs Initiative. Please welcome our host, Daniel Kochis, Senior Policy Analyst in European Affairs for the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us here at the Heritage Foundation for a very important discussion. The Three Cs Initiative was launched in 2016. It's a valuable project for strengthening trade, infrastructure, energy, and political cooperation amongst countries bordering the Adriatic, Baltic, and Black Seas. And a strong, prosperous, and secure Eastern Europe is in America's interests, and the 3SI plays an important role in making this happen. And here at Heritage, we very much believe that this is an initiative that can be uh, a sustainment of bipartisan support in the United States and also help to build uh, transatlantic bridges. Today, we are very, very grateful to be joined by Minister of Foreign Affairs of Afia, Edgar Rikovich. Edgar is, um, has been minister since October of 2021. You just passed uh, your anniversary. Actually, your anniversary is today, I believe, uh, the 25th. So we're grateful to have you here on a very auspicious day. Uh, you were also head of the Chancellery of the President of Latvia from October 2008 through October 2011. You served as State Secretary in the Ministry of Defense of the Republic of Latvia from August 1997 until October of 2008. Uh, you also worked as the Chief uh, of the Office for Organizing the NATO Summit of Heads of State and Government in Riga, a very important summit uh, that happened in 2006. You graduated from the University of Latvia where you received your master's degree in political science in 1997. From 1999 to 2000, you studied at the US um, National Defense University here in Washington. So you are uh, no stranger to the US. So thank you again for being with us today. We're um, very excited for this topic. And I'm, I'm not sure about you, uh, Mr. Minister, but sometimes I always cringe a bit when I hear Latvia described as uh, a post-Soviet Republic in, in some uh, articles. I think it's a little bit of lazy journalism, but there are real structural legacies of uh, Soviet occupation in your country and in the wider region uh, that impact the Three Seas Initiative. Can you talk a little bit about how these manifest sort of as, as economic disadvantages? Well, first of all, good afternoon and thank you for having me. And indeed, uh, you are absolutely right that uh, we get uh, really very upset that uh, sometimes some of journalists are still using this kind of uh, definition of Latvia or, or other Baltic states as the former Soviet republics. We will never be part of the Soviet Union on our own free will. That was the period of Soviet occupation. But you're also right that uh, actually those 50 years of the occupation uh, has left uh, some challenges that we still need to address. Uh, and uh, those challenges are, first of all, transportation and energy. Uh, as we speak, we are uh, working on uh, deconnecting from uh, the so-called Braille network, that's uh, uh, electricity network of uh, Russia and Belarus. Uh, the Baltic states are still part of it, and we are working with the, the assistance of the European Union partners to connect to the European network. That project should be completed by 2025. Uh, we also work on the high-speed railway, Rail Baltica, uh, that also now is already advancing well. So 
one of the uh, top priorities and also to some extent challenges that we are facing is to get connected also in very practical terms to Europe and uh, also to address some of uh, those legacies of, uh, of being part of, uh, forcefully being part of the Soviet Union. And also the Three Seas Initiative, as you mentioned in your introductory remarks, is uh, already uh, more than five years old. And it started actually as a kind of political conversation. But I'm very glad to see that actually it evolved in a very practical, uh, three-dimensional, um, let's say, cooperation framework uh, among the countries of the Baltic, Black, and Adriatic Sea. And those three dimensions are digital, energy, and transportation. And uh, I think that it is very important to understand that uh, uh, all of countries of the region are struggling to some extent on how to make the region more competitive, uh, how to attract uh, more investment from the United States, from Japan, from uh, what we call the Western world, and especially how to invest in uh, digital competencies, how to invest in renewable energy sources, how to address also dependency on, uh, let's say, one supplier, Russian gas, or I already mentioned electricity. And finally, also how to connect ourselves from Tallinn and Riga to Warsaw to, to Budapest and maybe ending up in, in Zagreb or, or Ljubljana. Right. Th thank you for that. Um, it's certainly an interesting time, I think, to be talking about threes, as you said now, five years. Um, Latvia will host the seventh uh, summit uh, in business forum next year in, in 2022. Uh, your president has called the 3SI um, to be brought to the next level. And so what, what does that mean to you? I mean, can you share a little bit about uh, the program for the initiative that you'll be looking towards uh, next year? Well, uh, what we have seen is really great work done by, I would say, previous coordinators. There is no kind of presidency or chairmanship, I would say, coordinators. Uh, we just had a great summit in Bulgaria, uh, in Sofia, before that in uh, Tallinn, Estonia. Uh, what we want to see uh, and what our program is, first of all, we want to somehow complete the creation of uh, so-called uh, three uh, C's initiatives.